Our passage this morning is found in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 1 through 14. And as we're turning to it, I'm going to tell you a story that my wife says is not approved. And so, it goes something like this. There's a little town in Oklahoma during the Depression. And uh, this town had three pastors in it. And they had these uh, brothers, these two brothers, that uh, were busy buying up uh, foreclosed properties for pennies on the dollar and uh, were selling them at full price when anyone new moved into town. And so they became quite wealthy, but they were also quite despised. And so the time came and one of the brothers died. And so uh, the, the, the surviving brother went to the pastors of the, of the place and they said, hey, uh, we, we, I'd like you to do my brother's funeral service. None of them would do it. Finally, they came to the last pastor of the town and, they, and he, he said, uh, I, I need you to do my brother's funeral service. And he says, but you don't go to my church. I, I, I don't know if you're ever going to church. And uh, he, he said, I don't know if I can do it. He says, I will pay you four times what you would normally charge. And uh, the pastor, this being the depression and the church was on hard times, said, okay, I'll do it. And the surviving brother said, but you have to say during the sermon that my brother was a saint. So the day of the service comes and the whole town is shocked that somebody said they would do his service, his funeral service. So his church was packed. And so the time comes, he does the music, he does everything he's supposed to do. He comes to the homily. And he's talking about the brother. And he finally comes to this part where he says, now we know, we know the brother that's lying in the coffin before us and we know what a despicable man he was. We know that he had all this money in the bank and it didn't do anyone any good except them. And we all know that we pretty much hate them. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> Our passage this morning reads like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us within the Beloved. We have redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He planned in Him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both in heaven and things on earth in Him. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. May God add a blessing to the reading of his most precious word today. When I was a child growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, we didn't have any pro football teams until I was nine years old. And that's when the Saints 
came to New Orleans. And I remember watching that television, uh, black and white television, those Saints games. And, and I remember that I really liked it okay, but you know, it wasn't a big deal. I was a paper boy, and I got 10 new subscribers. And they said, if you get 10 new subscribers, we'll all get on the bus, and we'll go to Tulane Stadium, and we'll watch a Saints game. And so, wonder of wonders, I had 10 new subscribers. And so I got on that bus, and we rode all the way down to New Orleans from Jackson, and we went to the Saints game, and I had such a nice time. And so the Saints always had a, a nice place in my heart. And uh, when I turned 18, I, I served a tour in the Navy, and I lost track of the Saints. But when I got home, and I attended my local Baptist college, I started paying attention to the Saints again, but I was disappointed. In 1980, the Saints lost their first 14 games. And sportscaster Bernard Diliberto advised the Saints supporters when they went to a game at the stadium to wear a bag on their heads. And they did. And they wrote on the bags, the New Orleans Aints. And uh, it took a long time for us to win our first game. But while I was going to Baptist College, some of my classmates started preaching sermons like, are you a saint or are you an ain't? And our passage today tells us what being a child of the Father looks like, even though we often forget. Now, this passage of Scripture is chock full of so much doctrine that I was reminded uh, that uh, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. So, again, I'm going to be mindful of that when I do it. Suffice it to say, and many people forget, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to a church that he had taught and, and discipled for three years. Ephesus is located in what we now know as Turkey today. One reason I was drawn to this letter is because of the emphasis on Christ, the church, and the Christian. Charles Spurgeon, and if you've ever had a chance to read some of Spurgeon's writings, said this about Ephesus. Whosoever would see Christianity in one place, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this epistle to the Ephesians. Kent Hughes, the best-selling author uh, who wrote Disciples of a Godly Man, Disciples of a Godly, Disciplines of a Godly Woman, and so many books, I can't rattle them off here today, said, Ephesians, carefully, reverently, prayerfully considered, will change our lives. It is not so much a question of what we will do with the epistle, but what the epistle will do with us. Here's a recommendation for you. And I'll do it if you'll do it. Somewhere between now and March 31st, that's Easter Sunday, somewhere between March 31st and now, sit down, when you got a moment, and read the book of Ephesians. Now don't read it through to see how fast you can do it. Take time to sightsee. It's an amazing book. In many of Paul's letters, he addresses a specific sin issue or a problem that was afflicting a church's unity and mission. And this paragraph says it well. What I get a kick out of is a slide I saw from a chaplain one day. And it said, if Paul saw the church in America today, we'd be getting a letter. And one pastor wrote, and I wish I'd thought of it first, and it, it summarizes Paul's common greeting to a church if he wrote America. It would be something like this. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. 
for the love of everything holy, stop being so stupid. Timothy says hi. In Ephesians, we see how passionate Paul is about the gospel and the glory of God. He is so enthralled that he heaps blessing upon blessing, forgetting all about the rules of grammar and proper sentence length. Because the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians is one long sentence. I can only shudder at what my grammar teacher in the sixth grade, Mrs. Husbands, would have done to Paul. Uh, if he had ever presented a sentence like that in her class and was told to graph it. Uh, I'm sure that uh, his uh, palms of his hands would be all red from the slap marks of the ruler. Uh, but it's one long run-on sentence because he can't stop. Some, if, some theologians who don't know the, the Jewish customs, don't know Paul, don't know the fact that Paul was a Sadducee, have actually said Paul might have been a little tipsy when he wrote this. And I will tell you, he was not high on anything that earth has to give. He was high on the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. And if you can imagine being happy, almost giddy, when you're in prison, that says a lot about what Paul thought about his Ephesian brothers when he wrote this passage. Verse 1 begins with the briefest of all Paul's salutations. He identifies himself as Paul. And if you want to know what it sounds like in the Greek, it's Paulus. And it means small. He was actually originally named for King Saul, who was very tall, but now he goes by Paul. Kent Hughes suggests that Paul's smallness became the medium for God's bigness. His weakness, a channel for God's power. <coughs> he refers to himself as an apostle, which means a sent one. He knew he had no authority in himself, because he was saved and sent by Christ by the will of God. Paul does something that is amazing because the world has twisted this so much. Paul addresses his recipients as saints, which refers to all believers, not those who are super spiritual or canonized by a pope. Literally, a saint is one who is set apart as holy. Uh, J. J. Vernon McGee used to talk about this sort of thing. And he would say, there's people who are saints, and then there's the rest of the world. And that's something that we need to get in our heads. Because so often, we, are, we forget we are saints. And I think if we realize that, our driving will get an awful lot better on the highway. Wouldn't you think? We are saints. We represent God. We need to show that we are God's chosen ones. If you're a believer, you're always in two places at the same time. You are in the Lord and you're in your location. You are in Christ and you're at home. You are in Christ and you're here. When you go to work, you're in Christ and you're in the workplace. When you go to school, you are in Christ and you're on your campus or in a home school. Write this down. Your purpose is tied to your place. Paul gives his greeting of grace and peace. Grace always comes before peace because we must first be reconciled to God by his unmerited favor, which results in peace with God and others. In other words, when you're at peace with God, when you realize God's grace is upon you, you have peace. No matter what your situation that you're going through. And I know some brethren out there are going through some pretty hard times right now. Christmas has passed, and now we're back to normal times. 
And all the things that we put aside during the Christmas holidays are all upon us now. But the reality is that when we turn ourselves over to God, when we, grant, when we, when we get peace from Him and grace, then His unmerited favor just fills us so full of love, not just for our families, but for everyone around us. Here's our main idea. God blesses us, so we will bless Him with our lives. It's a standard thing in the book of Ephesians. God blesses us, so we will bless Him with our lives. Many of you don't know, but as Paul is writing this epistle, he's also putting in verses of song in this epistle. And you can imagine Paul writing it and then breaking out into song during the course of his epistle. And... There is a, a Hebrew, what's called a baracha, or a blessing song. And he writes with buoyant joy in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The word blessed means to speak well of, to praise. We get our word eulogy from this Greek word. One commentator says that the idea is to praise with worshiping love, doctrine must always lead to doxology because our position before Him should catapult us into praise. Looking at the passage again, I want you to notice how God has blessed us. God has blessed us in the past. We can have certainty and assurance that He's already blessed us. The word us shows these blessings are for all believers, including Jews and including Gentiles. This is the same word used by Elizabeth when she exclaimed with a loud cry to Mary in Luke 1.42, Blessed are you among women. Every believer is just as blessed as Mary was. Let me say that again. Every believer is just as blessed as Mary was. There are not categories of blessing. If you are a believer, you've already been blessed. There are no second-class Christians. These blessings come only to those in Christ. To be in Christ is to partake of all that Christ has done, all He is and all that He will ever be. We have every blessing we need. We're not taking or lacking anything. We don't need a word from the Lord or a prophetic utterance. Everything we need to know is found in the Bible and every blessing we need has already been given to us. We don't need a second blessing because we've already been given thousands of blessings. When we receive Christ, we receive everything God has for us. We are complete in Christ. When you accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, for many of us, and, and I say this because it's kind of a Baptist tradition, uh, we had evangelists and we sat in there and the evangelist would tell us things, and basically he would say that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you are going to hell. And they're not wrong. But the reality is there's so much more having to do with accepting Jesus as your Savior and Lord that is a blessing to you that all this stuff about damnation and hell just kind of passes into the background. It's kind of like a background noise on your radio. It's there, but for you as a Christian, it doesn't mean anything. We are complete in Christ. And these blessings are primarily spiritual, not material. 
We can't often see the blessings because they are in heavenly places. They are higher, better, more secure than earthly blessings. To say it another way, you're sealed in the heavenlies with Christ even when you're down in the dumps. This passage can be outlined according to specific blessings from the individual members of the Holy Trinity. The first verses from 4 to 6 is the selection of God the Father. Verses 7 through 12 is the sacrifice of God the Son. Verses 13 through 14, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And every time he talks about what these three have done, he says, Amplified praise. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory again in verse 14. God blesses us, so we will bless Him with our lives. The selection of God the Father, verses 4 through 6, according to verse 4, our possession of every spiritual blessing is as certain as our being chosen by Him. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The word chose (coughs) means to select. We were selected before the beginning of the world. And we were chosen before we did anything or have been anything for God. I am reminded of what Jesus said in John 13, 16. Sorry, my eyes shifted a little bit. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The bottom line is that we would never have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. Notice how God's chosen us not only leads to our salvation, but also to our sanctification. To be holy means to be set apart and blameless has the idea of being spotless. My guess is some of you struggle with the idea of God choosing people. If so, you may have even more difficulty with verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Before you push back on predestination, let's agree that it's a biblical word. Found both in verse 5 and again in verse 11. It also appears in Acts 4.28, 1 Corinthians 2.7, and Romans 8.28-30. At its core, the word means to decree or determine beforehand. Some will be ready to say, why preach such a doctrine as election? And I answer, because it's in God's word. Whatever is in God's word, you need to be ready to preach it. I'm not sure why Christians go to war over this, but I've seen it firsthand in our denomination, and you probably have as well. This subject has caused friendships to fracture, churches to split, and divided Christians into doctrinal tribes. Too often, the fight between those who celebrate election and those who celebrate free will has fa- you know, always fails to glorify God. It fails to promote evangelism and to build up believers. When I was a chaplain in the army, when I was in Korea, we would go to training sites, and one of them in particular was the Multipurpose Range Complex, or the MPRC for short. And we would go in for a two- or three-week training cycle. And basically, everything we needed on that three-week training had to either be on our backs or in our trucks. Imagine everything 400 soldiers would need for the time period, and you weren't allowed to go out and get what you forgot. 
And so before the mission, we would sit down and we'd put a map of the MPRC out in front of our table. And we would study it. We'd study the topography, the way the land up rises up and down. The weather forecast, the road conditions, and the mission that we were sent to do. One thing we needed to pay careful attention to was where we sat down. If we set down our tents in a pasture area and it rained, we wouldn't be able to do anything because we would be surrounded by acres and acres of mud. And it happened before. Our commander used to say, and he was a Christian, uh, our commander used to say, if you use your free will to set up in a grassy field, it is no wonder that you were predestined to be stuck in the mud. We as Christians, when we argue free will versus election, we kind of waste our time. We have no knowledge of who will accept Christ. So we need to evangelize everyone and leave the electing to God. I remember a pastor one time shared with me that the, uh, when, when God looks at, at humanity and looks at time, he's looking at a long parade. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. He sees what's in the middle. He is mindful of every little partaker in that parade. And that includes me and you. And so instead of worrying about who's going to be a Christian and who's not, we need to preach the gospel to everybody regardless. And I, I, I'm a historian, you know that. And I can't begin to tell you how many times people who are so high-minded, so rich, so worthy would never accept Jesus as Savior and Lord because they were found in themselves and they didn't need anything. They didn't need anybody. Christianity was part of their culture, but eh, I got better things to do. And then it's amazing how the most downtrodden, the most that are so, uh, so hindered by their need to earn a living, to put food on the table, to keep from starving to death, in droves would accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Because they could see in the midst of their deprivation, they needed the gospel, they needed the Lord, and they would accept Him. But I've also seen rich men fall to their knees and blubber and cry and realize the kind of lives they had lived and how they had ignored their Creator and came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I've known some poor people so angry at their situation, they never would look up and see the Lord. We have no way of knowing who has been touched by God, who will accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so instead of creating more controversy, let's commit to act like Christ toward those with a different view. Instead of dividing, let's become more devoted to each other. Instead of whacking each other over the head, Let's be filled with wonder and worship. Instead of fighting, let's ask God to grow our faith. Instead of battling each other, let's bind together to reach people with the gospel. Let's grow in awe of God and in grace toward each other. Here's what I believe the scriptures teach. God is supremely sovereign and we are responsible for our response to them. While some get worked up about election and predestination, it should actually lead us to worship, as we see in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. To praise means to applaud God for His glorious grace. 
You know, when I, and I'm going to call Zach out. Uh, Zach is awesome. Zach leaves me wanting more. Every time he gets up here and leads singing, I, I'm thinking, is that it? I, I want some more. I really do. And it would not be wrong for us to give Zach a round of applause for his, the way he does our singing. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome. I hope you can accept that. Bless you. Uh, he's wonderful. And, but how often do we see God do something that is so marvelous and so great? Do you stop and, and applaud God for what he did? I've seen people walk the Grand Canyon and they turn around a bend in the trail and see a, a beautiful sight. And they're, oh, oh, can't believe how beautiful it is. And start applauding. And that's a precious thing. I tell people that's exactly how you should accept what God has done for you. With applause. Because you can't believe what he's done. The word glory refers to heavy in weight, important, significant, having a great reputation and splendor, brightness and beauty, worthiness and honor. God's glory is the sum total of the weightiness of all his attributes. It has to do with the fame of his name and represents his presence and power. We certainly don't understand how he works everything out, <coughs> but we choose to trust him because we have been blessed in the Beloved. God blesses us, so we will bless Him with our lives. Now let's turn to the second member of the Trinity as we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Let us savor verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of His grace. Redemption always involves a price being paid for the freedom that is purchased. The concept of redemption reminds us that we were slaves to sin who have been purchased at the cost of His blood, resulting in forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And 1 Peter, 1st chapter, verse 19, adds that we've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. I love how descriptive the language is here. We have been forgiven according to the riches of His grace. Some people struggle with grace. Verse 8 says, This forgiveness was lavished upon us, which means to superabound, to have an excess. God goes over and over to forgive us according to Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. According to verse 9, this results in making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Believers get the blessing of learning about the mysteries of God and living out His purpose for our lives, as we see in Colossians 1.26. The mysteries hidden for ages and generations are now revealed in his saints. Verse 10 helps us to see that his plan will unite all things in him. Verse 11 adds that we will obtain an inheritance. All of this according to verse 12 is to the praise of his glory. Once again the glory, the goal of God's plan culminates in the praise of his glory. God blesses us so we will bless him with our lives. Uh, on my uh, father's mother's side we have the bogans 
And one day, Charlie Bogan, which, who was my great-great-grandfather, was plowing a field outside of Simpson County, in, outside of Mendenhall, Mississippi, in Simpson County. He's plowing a field, and he's a poor dirt farmer. A poor dirt farmer. He's plowing up his field, and all of a sudden, he sees a car driving up to his farmhouse. And so, anytime you're a farmer, you're, you're, you're really into your work, and you see a car drive up, it doesn't put you in a good mood. Because you want to finish what you're doing. And so, he has to stop. He unhitches the plow right where it is. Leads the horses back to the farm. And he goes inside the house where my great-grandmother has already served these men tea. They have flown in to the Jackson Airport and they've been driven by a chauffeur to the house. And Uncle Charlie Bogan is being told something he never believed. There is a castle called Bogan Castle, and it's in Ireland. And it turns out that all the relatives and people who had any kind of control over that castle in Ireland have died out. And so they have to make a decision about that castle. And so they look, and they go through, and they find in the lineage that the closest relative to Castle Bogan that can control it, Charlie Bogan the dirt farmer. And so they pull out reams and reams of paper, and they explain the situation. And so he proceeds to sign all this paperwork, giving them the ability for the upkeep of his castle that he's never been to. And he fills all that stuff out. And he puts back in their hands. And they drive back to Ireland and they continue running Castle Bogan as a tourist attraction. But I want you to understand that for Charlie Bogan, that changed everything. That changed everything. His inheritance gave him a small stipend of the tourists when they came and visited the castle. His whole life changed because he obtained an inheritance that he had never known before. And I want you to understand that your inheritance with Christ, what Uncle Charlie got pales in comparison to what you got in your inheritance in Jesus Christ our Lord. God the Father selects us. God the Son sacrificed His life for us. And that leads to the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit serves as our assurance that we are God's possession and will always be under His protection. I don't know how many of you have listened to the Moody radio program, but one of the, one of the guys that was running it one time made this observation. He said, if you can't earn your way to salvation by being good, how can you possibly lose your salvation by being bad? Verse 14 adds that in addition to sealing us, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The word guarantee was a down payment, a first installment, much like earnest money in our culture. Romans 8.23 says the Holy Spirit serves as first fruits of much more to come. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who has prepared for us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Once again, we see that all these blessings to lead us 
to the praise of His glory. God blesses us, so we will bless Him with our lives. And in summary, let's bless God and praise Him for His glorious grace. I want to list the ten bursts of blessings listed in our passage, in our conclusion. Blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen to be holy and blameless, predestined for adoption, redeemed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven of all trespasses, lavished with His grace, granted understanding of His will, obtained an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteed future blessings. After knowing all these things, how can we keep quiet? How can we not share our glorious gospel? What right do we have to be ashamed in any way, shape, form, or fashion? We should never be ashamed. Look at what He did for us. How can we not work for Him? Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we have people in our lives that come and go. And so often, we're a little bit timid. We're a little bit mindful. Sometimes we don't believe that what has happened to us through Christ Jesus our Lord ought to happen to them. But it's God's will. It's God's will that someone like you who has experienced God's rich blessing would take them by the hand and tell them the best news they will ever hear in their lives. Oh God, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us discernment. Help us to always be about sharing the great things that have happened to us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Please.